Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Laura Landon. The music you're hearing is from The Celtic Mass for the Sea by the Canadian composer Scott McMillan. The Mass embodies the pagan roots of Celtic Christianity in its prayers and incantations, its blessings and proverbs, as well as its deep sense of living with the earth. That spirit is also reflected in a new book, Reclaiming the Commons for the Common Good, by the Canadian writer and scholar Heather Menzies. She calls her book both a memoir and a manifesto. In her book, Menzies returns to her ancestral roots in the highlands of Scotland to recover the rituals, habits, and practices that enabled people to live and work together on common land. She writes that commoning was a way of life for her ancestors and also a way of knowing through the sharing of experience, through common knowledge, and common sense. That way of life ended during what is known as the Clearances, when Highlanders were forced off their land. Many displaced Scots, including Heather Menzies' forebears, emigrated to Canada, where Aboriginal peoples had also been forced off their traditional lands and herded onto Indian reserves. She writes that as she watches her First Nations neighbours recover their lost traditions, renew their old practices, and relearn their mother tongues, she senses parallels in the journey that she and others, whose ancestors settled in North America, can undertake. Heather Menzies argues that recovering the knowledge and values of commoning could reconnect people with the land and help them escape the stress, disconnection, and dependencies inherent in many aspects of modern life. It could also help all of us reconcile with Native peoples while learning to heal an overheating planet in an overextended global economy. Heather Menzies spoke about reclaiming the commons for the common good with New Books Network contributor Bruce Wark. Heather, let's, uh, let's talk about why you wrote this book. I wrote it out of a sense, well, it started out of a sense of frustration, a sense of being at a dead end. I had written a series of books writing about the drift and the shift to the online world, culminating in a book called No Time, Stress and the Crisis of Modern Life. And the crisis I identified was a crisis of disconnect. Um, We were disconnected from ourselves, from each other, from family, from community, and from the earth. So how do we reconnect? So in other words, I had the analysis down pat, uh, at least I figure, I've got the analysis. Another way of putting it, particularly these days in the age of climate change, is I was documenting what was happening with uh, an increasingly dysfunctional, overheated global economy on a collision course with uh, an overheating and increasingly distressed planet. And I didn't know how to ground myself, in a sense, of the alternative. And out of a sense of just, I have nothing to say, I'm just flapping my lips, I thought, I'm going to go, trying to refresh my perspective, I'm going to go look in the past, and specifically, I'm going to check out 
the past of my ancestral heritage in the Highlands of Scotland. I knew nothing about it. So I literally set out on what you could call almost a spirit quest, looking for an alternative, a way to enunciate an alternative truly to the status quo that always has the market, always has numbers, always has the economy in economistic terms and language in the center. Why is this book uh, relevant to us today? How, what's its relevance? I guess the relevance is in what I discovered. I discovered that my ancestors had lived in pre-modern commons and commons communities called Fermtoons, really up until the clearances that brought them to Upper Canada in the 1830s and 40s. And the commons I discovered is, um, it's not just land, it's people and land together as one. That's what the word common actually means, together as one. So it was people working out relations uh, with the land that would allow both themselves to be sustained and their lives to be sustained and the land that supported them, their ancestral homelands to be sustained. And so I discovered here a vision that I think many people seeking alternatives these days are groping towards because there's such an impulse towards let's go back to the earth, let's go back to doing it ourselves, self-organizing, self-governance, and reclaiming a sense of entitlement to caring about this land. Well, that's our ancestors, so many people's ancestral heritage, even if they are not what we would call native people of North America. So I think it's very relevant to today's discussion. We're getting such an acute understanding of the crisis that we're in right now, uh, this overheating increasingly distressed um, planet and the, the the debate is called climate change and there's marches happening and fabulous books like Naomi Klein's new book this changes everything well we know that there has to be a change but we there isn't a vision for changing towards and this is a vision of how a pattern of social organization that's also economic organization as well as a way of being in relation to the earth that is in intimate relation. This is a way that has historical precedence. And if people can reclaim that heritage, that memory of the pre-modern commons, I think it will help to inform all the activism that's going on at both on the street in, the, in, in protests and also at the grassroots level in food security, in people trying to bring back community and restore habitat, either that be that in a neighborhood, in a city, or be that in the countryside, a river or a, or a lake or something. From Reclaiming the Commons for the Common Good, a memoir and manifesto by Heather Menzies. I was feeling stuck at the time I first went to Scotland because I'd run out of things to say. I had been writing about market globalization and the shift to an online world, critiquing the disconnect from self, others, and community, the deepening inequalities and the desperate dependency on jobs, 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 as well as the brave new Darwinism of speed and outperformance. More recently, I had linked this shift with the disaster of environmental degradation and global warming, seeing them as mutually reinforcing an overextended global economy and an overheated planet. Yet I could offer nothing by way of real alternatives. I knew what I was against, but not what I was for. Or rather, I couldn't name any alternative or feel it in a way that I could get a real grip on, 
strong and real enough to inspire action, action that could be sustained through a movement for genuine change. As I packed and prepared myself, I told my friends that I wanted to walk the land where my ancestral roots lay buried, not to learn details about my genealogy so much as to ground myself. I had a vague sense of wanting to dwell in a state of unlearning and even unknowing. I wanted to find, and if possible, set myself down in the gap where other paths and ways of being in the world had been abandoned and left to die away. These ways might whisper to me, I thought, maybe even speak to my troubled world. People who have noticed a change in me since I got, came home, because what it is, is it's given me a deeper sense of myself. I now understand why First Nations people here in North America talk about the importance of walking their ancestral land, putting their bodies back onto the land. It restore, By restoring yourself to the place on the on this planet where your people lived once in direct relations with the land possibly even right relations is so extends your sense of self and your identity and it reroutes you in being an inhabitant of this glorious habitat called earth now what i did was I combined a whole lot of, well, scholarly, because I am a kind of academic. Uh, so I read all kinds of really, really good scholarly research as has been happening in the last 20, 25 years, really reclaiming the history, the real history, the actual history of the commons that where it actually worked. There was self-governance, self-regulation. They, they set stints or limits or quotas on the number of sheep and cows and goats that could be sent to the upland common pasture for the summer. So I... I combined all that, uh, oh, stints, by the way, that were then very scrupulously enforced, and there were field officers who were elected at the common meetings, and common meetings were held at public houses, and that's the origin of the word pub. Um, So I researched all this, and then I combined that with walking the actual land that my ancestors had walked and had worked and where they'd taken their cows and sheep and herded them through the summer months. I was very fortunate. I Somebody had done a genealogical chart on my family, and those are full of dry entries. Well, there was one dry entry for 1792. My great-great-great-grandfather, James Mingus Menzies, was born, 1792, in Tullicrow, Dull, Scotland. Well, I could find Dull on the map, but what was Tullicrow? And it turned out that was the name of a ferm tune, which was the word they gave for these commoning um, hamlets where people would live. There'd generally be about 30, 35 people, um, and they'd often be walled, but they would... So I actually was able to find that ferm tune through somebody, by going to Dull, I rented a bicycle in... <laughs> in the local place where I was staying, bicycle to Dull. Somebody said, oh, go ask the local farmer. And there the local farmer knew exactly where what Tullicrow was. And he was the one who explained that it, in fact, was a ferrum tune. And it harkened back to the commons era. And he just pointed his gnarly finger, and there it was, just down the road. So I pushed my bicycle up this very steep hill, and there was the ruins, or not totally fallen down ruins, of a crux cottage that was built in 1790. So I kind of figured, well, Maybe that's where exactly where my great-great-grandfather was born. Other buildings had been restored, and one of them called a bothy, and a bothy is just a little hut where people sleep. Um, they had been restored 
filled with mod comms like a bathroom and a kitchen, and, and, you, and it's turned into a vacation rental. Well, I rented it. So there it was, <laughs> actually, in the place where people who bore my name and from whom my ancestor who came to Canada um, lived. And so I got, to, I got to ground my research in this very visceral experience of being in this place where my ancestors had lived. So it was research-based imagining that is the first part of this book. From Reclaiming the Commons for the Common Good, a memoir and manifesto by Heather Menzies. A few years before I went to Scotland, I had accepted an invitation to join a Native women's drumming and chanting circle that met once a week at Minwashan Lodge, near the Ottawa bus station. One day, when women were introducing themselves, saying their spirit name, then naming their clan and tribal connections, I said that one day I hoped to find out more about my own tribal roots, which I knew were in the highlands of Scotland, and bring back what I learned to this circle. The women had been so welcoming, so generous in sharing their traditions, their still-living heritage, and I wanted to reciprocate. I didn't know what looking for my tribal roots might entail, nor what I had in mind when I spoke my intentions, but I could feel the call as soon as I'd uttered those words, and now, nearly four years later, I heeded it. When I spoke of my travel plans, most of my friends just nodded and smiled and asked no further questions. But Morning Star Woman, Bev, from the drumming circle, did more than smile and nod. She chuckled as if she fully understood. You're going to welcome your ancestors back, she said, as if this was the most normal thing in the world to do. Yes, I said, surreptitiously writing down her words, making sure I packed this note in my bag, because it hadn't occurred to me to even imagine such a possibility, that there might have been voices behind my sense of being called, a dialogue waiting to be renewed. As I found on the ordnance maps the ruins of shealings, uh, shealings is the, is the word for an upland common pasture, and it also refers to the little stone structures they built for sleeping in and storing the cheeses that they made over the summer. And I found some of the, the, the signs, the little symbol on the ordnance map indicating ruins of shealings in exactly the territory that my clan, my, my people had occupied, packed a picnic lunch and hiked up to, to find the shieling ruins. And, and it was quite amazing because it was just the sheep. And there'd been sheep there all the years preceding and still probably they're still there. And then the mist, a mist came down in the highlands. In September in particular, the mists come down very quickly. And it's quite spooky, but it was also quite ethereal. And then it started raining a little bit, so I sort of hunkered down in the corner of where two walls sort of met in the ruins of the shielings. It was just the sheep, the mist, and me. And it was not hard to imagine the spirits of my ancestors calling to me, calling me home. And then I discovered a whole lot of lore because... Um, one of the things that has really gone missing in our society, we live in this very dried out society where religion and, and, and myth is, is way off either in a church or in a museum. But my ancestors lived in myth time and, and spirit presence was everywhere. And part of my research was to uncover that in, again, 
texts that I read about, but then to combine that with the walking the land. So I had some pretty mystical experiences. Um, I discovered as I read about Celtic Christianity, which persisted in this particular area, the Tay River Valley, well into the late um, 18th century, if not also into the 19th century, the essence of Celtic Christianity is that there is no God is not some transcendent being, judging or not judging. God is embedded or imminent in all creation and imminent in all activities of daily life. So I uncovered uh, in a book called Carmina Gedelica, which was put together in 1860, and it was the, tr- the putting down into written form of s- hymns and songs and chants that had been passed down through the oral tradition since, well, nobody could remember. And they were a combination of pagan and Christian. Really, it's a rich, rich storehouse of memory. And there was a prayer of the teats, and it's, 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 it's a prayer that a woman milking her cows in the cow byre at the end of the Crux Cottage would invoke every morning and evening as she said about milking the cows. And it was, bless, O oh God, this cow, my little cow, bless my partnership with the cow, bless each drop of milk that goes into the pitcher. And it, it I just imagined myself milking those cows in the byre and the prayer slipping like a, a glove over my work roughened hands and somehow imbuing my simple daily task with something that approached the sacred and certainly gave meaning to it a little bit more than just the practical utilitarian gotta get the milk to make the cheese to pay the rent and so on and so forth so that was the beauty and that's what I loved about writing the first section of the book was this Reclaiming the commons as memory and actually inhabiting that memory, having it come alive in me. How long did you spend there? I did three trips over a period of three or four years, and each time would be around two weeks, so it wasn't that long. From Reclaiming the Commons for the Common Good, a memoir and manifesto by Heather Menzies. Commoning, cultivating community and livelihood together on the common land of the earth, was a way of life for my ancestors and for many other newcomers to North America, too. It was a way of understanding and pursuing economics as embedded in life and the labor, human and non-human, that is necessary to sustain it. It was a way of ordering this life through local self-governance and direct participatory democracy. And it was a way of knowing through doing and the sharing of experience, through common knowledge and common sense. This common shaped people's identity through its webwork of commoning relationships that spun themselves afresh each day through the sharing of work, stories and faith rituals, through struggle over differences, and working things out together. The commoners who were my ancestors were no doubt individuals with all the normal inclinations toward greed, spite, and self-interest. They were also immersed in the rhythms of ongoing connection, of mutual obligation, mutual self-interest, and quotidian lessons on the common good. This book is very much, it is a political book, but it's also very much a healing book. Because one of the ideas that I had even going into it was we have to heal the disconnect within ourselves 
while and in order to be able to heal the disconnect from the earth. And my feeling was that psychological practices as well as spiritual practices were going to be part of that. Uh, So in the middle section of the book, where I take my sort of new perspective that I gained from the travels in Scotland and began to apply it to what do we need to address, what kind of capacity building do we need to restore in ourselves and between ourselves in order to really reclaim uh, governance and and, uh, and a new relationship with the planet. Um, I write about something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, which has been... uh, part of a Canadian uh, public through the state and embraced by the people, um, a public effort to uh, address the the terrible price of colonialism against the First Nations people of Canada, specifically through what they called the residential schools. And I can't remember the the number of thousands of kids that got scooped up and taken literally out of the bush where they were living in direct relation with the land and plunked into these brick-and-mortar residential schools in faraway towns and cities. Um, But it lasted from the 1870s to the 1950s and 60s. And so I went to some of their hearings, and I I sat there as this one woman talked in a very dull voice about having... She talked about how they took her away. It was her first time in a car, and she said... They took us away a day and a half. That's how far they took us away from our family. She had no way of reckoning distance in miles, but she did know how to reckon it in time. And then she went on in the same dull voice, and she she ended it with something like, you know, where there's a a board, and you drive a nail through it, and then maybe you you pull the nail out, and there's a hole left? That's me. I'm the hole. And I I listened to that, and I, I mean, even now it chokes me up. Uh, I sat there in the room, and I, even though I had been learning about the colonization of Scotland by the English, uh, I knew that my people had come to Canada as part of the colonizers, and I had to, I had to step up to the plate and take on uh, the, my part in in having, you know, that I am a person of privilege, uh, and it's by having embraced the colonizer role. Uh, and I and and so reconciling and effecting a, a, a reconciliation which involves acknowledgement, and you can only let go and forgive and and uh, when you when you acknowledge uh, the reconciliation is, follows from that. And so I think that reconciling with First Nations, both in Canada and the United States, is part of our reconciling with the Earth. One of the points you make in the book uh, is that. Your experience uh, going back to find your own Scottish ancestors in the highlands of Scotland helped you more fully understand the uh, native peoples of Canada or North America, I suppose. Um, how did that? Uh, how did that work out? I sense so many parallels. What's really neat is that I've had a couple of First Nations people who've read the book and have heard me talk about it, come up to me and approach me and say, we are talking the same language. And that has been so affirming because what I encountered there in Scotland was uh, they people did not have a sense of land as property. 
they had a sense of land as alive and habitat. It was habitat. It was their homeland. It was, and they were indivisible from it. They were inhabitants and habitat living out right relations together. It was an ongoing relationship. And the, I'll give you a small example, very, very similar. Uh, in First Nations tradition, there are names for geographic spots all over the place. And these, and in fact, in Canada, there is an effort to recover in the north the Inuit traditional names for places. You know, forget Frobisher Bay. What was it called originally? Well, there's places like um, in in Inuktitut. It is it translated into English. It means place where you throw down the stones. Well, and this meant that it was a a ridge where they. There was a bay where the beluga whales would come in at high tide. They'd throw down the stones, and it would trap the, the whales so they couldn't go out at low tide. And they would get a couple of whales to get the blubber and get the meat to see them through the winter and so on and so forth. And similarly, in Scotland, in the Highlands, name, places always had names that were specific to a, a storied relationship with the land. And as people were going to the uh, to the upland shielings, the, the commons uh, for the summer, because they would spend the whole summer there, the tradition bearers would lead them in a song called Khimi, or or ice in it that translates from the Gaelic to mean I simply I see. And the tradition bearer would say I see, and he would say I'd see, and then he'd call out, and it would come up with the name of a particular ridge, and it to, it would have a Gaelic name, and then the tradition bearer would tell the story behind that. And it's just a small example of a very similar sense of connection to the land. Similarly, there was a, a concept that was called dustus, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right, in Gaelic. And it was an inherited sense of not only your rights, but your responsibilities to your people and to the land that they co- you co-inhabit with them. And this was a, a very important sense of you were raised... To, to, to this is part of your heritage and this is part of your education, that you were raised to share that responsibility. You didn't have to be the clan chief. You all shared it. It was very much vested in the clan chief, but it was shared by all. That is so similar to First Nations. And in fact, that's exactly what started what we call the Idle No More movement in Canada. Five women in Saskatchewan who, when they, when they read the details of this voluminous, omnibus bills, particularly C-45 that the Harper government um, was bringing through in Canada, one of the things it was, it was doing there was taking away all the state protection and, and caring for 95% of the rivers and lakes in this country. And the women had a similar visceral response as I would imagine the people. They said, well, there's still we have a sense of responsibility for those lakes and rivers. And so they said, okay, we got to do something. And so they started the Idle No More movement, which is, even though it's not in the news right now, it is still very, very much alive, and it's informing a lot of the activity going on. So those are just two examples, but it was it's that sense of connectedness to land as habitat, as something that is part of you, you're not apart from it, and certainly not land as property and real estate, to just... Occupy, you know, use and abuse and move on from. And I think many of the self-governance traditions and the knowledge traditions as well, what they call traditional knowledge in First Nations communities, is really all about traditional ways of knowing. And this is ways of knowing through the way you'd know a friend. 
by relating to them, by engaging with them, by being present to them. So people in the Highlands, for instance, they would make decisions on how many sheep and cows would be sent to the commons for the summer based on pooling their knowledge, commoning their knowledge, on their observations of how the pasture had fared the previous summer. And if it seemed as though maybe they should pull back and send fewer whatever it was, um, then they made that decision. So knowledge was based on observation, shared experience, what we call participatory knowledge these days. And it's the, that's the root of traditional knowledge as well in the First Nations communities. In your book, there's you write a lot about kinds of knowledge. And uh, uh You've been talking about this kind of traditional knowledge, knowledge based on personal observation. What kind of knowledge do we seem to favor in our digital age society? Well, uh, in the university setting, it's, it's called positivism, uh, the gold standard. If it can't be reduced to data sets, it doesn't count. It doesn't exist as knowledge. That is really the rule, and it's, it's, it's a... Um, it's a very dominant rule of what constitutes knowledge. So when people talk about evidence-based decision-making these days, they're looking for data sets. And yet we just had a Supreme Court ruling uh, in June that recognized Aboriginal title in Canada, which is a huge thing. And it was based on evidence that was storied, that was a whole bunch of things that were more cultural and even spiritual than data-based. So it's really interesting that, and my sense is that one of the ways you control uh, change is at the level of knowledge. And if you can exclude people who are not experts, if you can, if you say that the people who are participants are, oh, somehow or other, they they lack credibility because they're involved in the situation and therefore they're biased, uh, and only include the bias of expert-based knowledge, knowledge that has been uh, filtered through what are established conceptual categories of what ex- what is real and what isn't real. So, for instance, if I wouldn't be able to uh, describe you, like for instance, if we were talking about in the workforce, I'd have to use the conceptual categories of occupation and salary and maybe gender, but I wouldn't be able to add the evidence of the fact that here's this story that shows that Bruce is a really good listener. And to my mind, <clears throat> a good listener is somebody who really helps to make an organization work. But that kind of storied evidence, if that's excluded, then there's a bias. So I'm very aware of the politics embedded in knowledge and knowledge systems. In fact, in the book, you describe yourself as a recovering expert. (laughs) That's true. I am a recovering expert. I began writing books that have dealt with the shift to the online world, uh, books that dealt with the what I sense to be the, the, the politics at work behind many of the technological changes that were going on in the shift to the globalized society. 
I started off trying to bring stories to conferences, and I was told, no, 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 no. No, in order to be recognized as um, somebody with authority to speak, you have to be recognized as an expert, which means you have to be published by an established research institute. So I went to the established research institute, and they said, you know, well, we're going to have to teach you how to become an expert. And that's when they said, okay, forget the stories, do numbers, and do computer modeling so you can project X number of people unemployed. And so I took that to the conference, and, of course, I'd already abandoned the stories of the the existing people in real time who had their own ideas of how to use the technology. I I think you were talking to telephone operators who were displaced by technology. Absolutely. And the telephone operators were being given a choice, move to the city from this smaller town uh, and get a job in a call center or take a buyout. And they said, well, there's a third option we'd like to explore, and that's how about bringing in this computerized call switching system and letting us create... They didn't use the word community information center, but that's what they'd been running because people would phone. They, you know, they were switchboard operators in the local town. People, people would dial zero if they wanted to know what time it was because their clock had stopped, or if they wanted to know what the hockey game score was in the local arena. I mean, those are the cute little stories, but it, it, you could see the nucleus for the potential for that, and that's where they came up with the idea. Well, again, got to the conferences, and this, these women's ideas. The women didn't exist. They didn't exist as stories. They didn't exist as identities. They were just data sets. And so it was much harder for me to resist being drawn into a debate that was all about de-skilling and reskilling. And so then we had this endless number of conferences that I frustrated myself at uh, where we talked about the needs, retraining for new jobs in the glorious new economy that was going to unfold when, in fact, the economy that has unfolded is filled with dead-end jobs if the jobs exist at all. And so people are so unengaged in their society. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a, well, it, for one thing, it creates a dependency on all the addictive activities that people are engaged in these days, which includes online addictions. But meanwhile, uh, there is this low-level depression because most people know that they are only nominally and marginally engaged in their society. Their skills, their talents, their aptitudes only hardly needed at all. Heather Menzies, the last part of your book is um, is a kind of manifesto um, about commoning practice. Um, what What are you saying there? I am picking up examples of different things going on um, that I see to be hopeful signs of people reconnecting with the earth and and trying to enunciate an alternative to this very destructive uh, free-for-all global market economy and putting them win- within the frame of the of the commons to say that this is where we are regaining the capacity to become inhabitants of a habitat. We are regaining the capacity to organize ourselves and solve problems within communities, within within bioregions, and 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 able to reclaim the vision for common good governance of the of the world. And uh, to give you an example, I talk about the importance of. Uh, just entering a relationship <clears throat> with the living world. Go for a walk in your neighborhood. Um, get to know the people in your neighborhood. 
Find out where there are opportunities to garden together. If there's a local park where kids can be playing together and you can extend just playing together on the swings to maybe entering a relationship with the plants, with the, with the, with the trees, etc. And I start talking about where you've got, there's field naturalists, outdoors, all kinds of naturalist kind of organizations that are trying to get kids in touch with nature, this whole nature deficit disorder thing. And what I say is do that, but encourage them to to see themselves as participants by giving them something to do, get their hands in the dirt, growing things, exploring over a one little bit of bushland or a park over a long period of you know, the seasons unfolding to see how the robins relate to the trees and so on and so forth. And I say that that's eco-literacy. Become eco-literate. In other words, become aware of of how everything relates to everything else by yourself relating to something. And it might simply be a school garden or a farmer's market or, or something like this. So I bring in all these little examples, and then I go at the level, I, I talk about a whole lot of people are doing things through around food security. There's a community-based agriculture, there's farmer's markets, there's this sort of thing. And I emphasize how the commons was all about responsible shared governance and and hold up the cooperative as a form of social organization that is in fact got its roots in the commons it's all about doing things in shares leadership from within and local self governance no matter the, the one of the big things is taking the site of authority and decision-making, and as much as possible, bringing it back to local communities and bringing it back to direct relations with the land so that you can have that feedback loop that existed in the commons. And I, I, I saw it so clearly as I combined the research with walking the land of the, of the commons, you know, the doing things together in shares, and then the sharing of the knowledge, pooling the knowledge arising from that shared experience, and then using that knowledge as a basis of decision-making on the next project they were going to do. So it's continuous feedback loop kind of thing. And that's the essence of sustainability. And that's what we're, that's the vision for the alternative, is sustainable relations, sustainable um, habitats. Be they social. They might be neighborhoods that have been, you know, they're right now ruled by drug bosses or crime syndicate. Well, reclaiming the commons of a neighborhood involves a whole bunch of these things that I talk about. So that I, I'm constantly knitting social and natural habitats together um, because that's the combined common that we're living in right now. And then I and then I encourage people to think about taking some of the ideas of Eleanor Ostrom about the commons um, and this notion of polycentric governance. So you've got the, the self-governance on the local level and the capacity building that goes on around that where people are able to take the initiative themselves, organize themselves together, share decisions, listen to each other over time, sustain relationships over time. And then, and then let's say it's a bunch of farmer's markets or community food centers that may have started off as food banks, but then you've started to give people the opportunity to grow their own vegetables and maybe have a community kitchen where they can process the food together. So you get people coming from those to larger gatherings um, where they decide on policy that will help to enable them to flourish and, and, and buttress that. And this is what Eleanor Ostrom talks about, the importance of having... Uh, 
uh, respect and support for the the self-regulation at the local level backed up at a provincial level or the state level or regional level and so on up and up and up and up and up and that's my vision for reclaiming the commons at a, at a larger more global level is where people have the direct experience of reclaiming their agency and their participation implicated in the common good of whatever the local habitat is and bringing the strength and the voice and the experience of how to do that, plus all the messiness of working it out, um, to bear at a larger level. And then we can start to get policies that actually have meaning. Uh, right now, for instance, one of the best examples is we've got human rights, international human rights regu- regulations, legislation, this, that, and the other, you name it, and the abuses of human rights that are going on in the signatory co- countries is just legion. So... It shows how much we have to do that slow, gradual work from the grassroots up. But it's it's very important we don't just confine it to the grassroots. It's it's acting locally and grassroots uh, and and then grassroots networking and and organizing on a regional and more global level, step by step by step in this polycentric way. Now you mentioned human rights, and I can't resist. Uh, 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 asking you about the word human, which you talk about in your book, where it comes from. <laughs> it's the same root as humus, which is the word for soil. Um, and we also know those people who kind of have a Judeo-Christian background, Adam, uh, which is supposedly the first man, uh, but it was a man, I don't know, there was, there's a lot of debate about that. Uh, that word, Adama, comes from the, uh, I think, Hebrew word for clay, red clay and soil. So we got two, uh, one at a myth and a metaphor, mythic level and the other at a, biolo- at a biological and science level, telling us, reminding us that we are of this earth. Literally. We are, Yeah. Um, now, I'll just ask you, Heather, you, your book uh, is c- quite wide-ranging. There's a lot in this book. <laughs> um, how hopeful are you for the future? I mean, the planet is seems to be facing some pretty dire threats. How hopeful are you that, that we can work it out? I try not to think too broadly and too much into the future because I am quite pessimistic. I'm not an optimist, but the difference between optimism and hope is that hope is often grounded in faith, and I have faith, and I enact that faith every day I get up, and I say miigwech, which is really interesting. It's a Cree word, an Algonquin word, for thank you, and I say I am so grateful for the having life. I breathe in. Spiro spirare, the roots of spirituality, by the way, and I am filled with life. I am, uh, I am constantly grateful uh, that I am a functioning, alive, integral part of this world, alive to it, and I want to keep contributing to it. So in a way, it's not for me to not have hope. Being alive, being able to talk to you, being able to give the speech I'm going to give tonight, um, being able to write what I write, think what I think, and then go out and work in my garden or sit by the water. All of these things are my way of acting out my hope and my faith. And in having my faith and my hope affirmed and in turn nourished. 
You've been listening to an interview with Heather Menzies, author of Reclaiming the Commons for the Common Good, a memoir and manifesto. Heather Menzies is the author of nine other books, including No Time, Stress and the Crisis of Modern Life, as well as Who's Brave New World, The Information Highway and the New Economy. She has been awarded the Order of Canada for her contributions to public discourse. Heather Menzies is an adjunct professor at Carleton University in Ottawa. She's also taught at other Canadian universities, including McGill and Simon Fraser. The interview was conducted by Canadian journalist Bruce Wark. I'm Laura Landon. See you next time on the New Books Network.